0: Um, I know that they have found joy in the Lord there. I found it here. Next Sunday night, uh, evening, I leave for Mozambique, Africa. I'll be teaching a class at the school there and doing a pastor's conference. And I'm going to have the same experience there. And so I know, being being born and raised in this country, that I avoid a lot of the things that fellow believers around the world don't get to avoid. They have to live through it and find The joy of the Lord and peace in Christ there in their their atmosphere, in their culture, in their world. So it didn't take long to move from blessed are the gods to blessed are those who are wealthy and those who are in power. And so when you look in the Old Testament, about the same time, parallel with what's going on in the non-Jewish world, you have um, um, this beatitude here in the Old Testament. But it takes an interesting form. It's talking about being in God's presence. Blessed are those who find forgiveness in the Lord. Blessed are those who find rest and peace in the Lord. That's how it's used to describe when we live within the sphere, the realm of God's presence, we begin to enjoy that sense of blessedness. Then Christ comes along and does something very, very different. He says the very things that, that the world looks down on, are the very things that define the people of God. They're the very things that begin to make sense out of the kingdom of God. You see, it's a reversal of human values. That's where the power of the Beatitudes lies. Blessed are those who mourn. This is not a description of, of, of what perfect life is like, how to get above it. This is a description of the reality that where we all live day to day. We all live in this this describes our life. When you read through these Beatitudes, they describe our life. Blessed are the poor. Matthew says poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Anybody here ever mourned? Let's see. Yeah, that's what I thought. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Anybody ever had mercy shown to them when you needed it? Yeah. Yeah. Blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. Mark talked last week about blessed are the persecuted. Uh, Apparently that was important enough that he wants to expand it this week. He talks about it, two different beatitudes. And so what Jesus said is when you look around and you look at the common people, what they're going through in life, that is actually the value that has the most significance. It's not getting above it. That's not the goal, to get above it all. It's to learn how to live faithfully in the midst of it because there's things to be learned there. We're going to talk a lot about that today. So the power of the Beatitudes is that he completely overturns, that's why I call it the great reversal, what the world thinks about true value. The values that are the best values are the ones that we are living out right now, day to day in our lives. And the question is why? So, verse 11. Verse 11. He picks up the theme from verse 10. This is kind of like an addendum to the, uh, the eight Beatitudes. And he expands on it. Blessed are you. Now in the verse 10 he said, blessed are those who are persecuted. These are generic truth statements that are true about people. But now he makes it more personal. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. And by the way here, these are plural. Blessed are you together as a group, the people of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. We don't have to do a lot of historical work to understand that. Not a lot to be gained by going back into history. You ever been insulted? You ever been persecuted? Granted, I know that our persecution is not on the level, is not the same as those in many of the countries where we travel to help out. But I do believe in a God who is interested in transformation. and What that means is he's going to take you through what you need in your context to grow in faith. Blessed are you when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you. You ever had that happen? False accusations. Now here's the real catch in this verse. Because of me. Because of me. It's not just simply having bad things said about you. Peter talks a lot about, you know, if you, um, if you suffer for doing something bad, hello, that's life. You should expect it. But if you suffer for doing what is right, this finds favor with God. So, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. When people find out that you are a Christian, it's only a matter of time, isn't it? It's only a matter of time before they say something that's not very nice. And he's saying that you are truly the blessed ones. But the real question is why? Why are you blessed? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. What? Rejoice in this? Be glad? Boy, this just goes against everything the world teaches us, doesn't it? Everything. Here's that capstone statement at the end that reverses the process. Rejoice and be glad that these are your characteristics that describe you. Finishing with people reviling you, saying bad things about you. Rejoice and be glad. Why on earth would he say that? Are we masochists? Why would he say that? Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets... In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, we're in a long line of people that have been persecuted. I'm not sure that helps, me make, helps make me feel any better. To be honest with you, you know. I've said many times, the last thing I want the Lord to say to Satan is, have you considered my servant Jim? Just like he did with Job. What I want him to say is, have you considered my servant Mark? So why on earth would he say rejoice and be glad? There's lots of places we can go in the New Testament that kind of unpack this idea. So in all the Beatitudes, we have gone backwards in time. This time, we're going to go forward in time and help you understand why you should rejoice. Because this is going to set the stage for you are the salt of the earth. In other words, what's happening is part of God's kingdom plan. This is not by accident what you're going through at all. This is part of God's plan. And down at the very core of it, here's what it looks like. Suffering is something we share with the world. That's a language the world understands. They get it. They know what it's like to be mocked. They know what it's like to mourn. They know what it's like to grieve. They know what it's like to be insulted. They know what it's like to be treated unfairly. We've all been through that. The world gets it. That's not something we have to to explain. As soon as they see you going through something, they've been through it themselves. But what they don't understand is how we respond to it. Grace is something and love that is unique. And so when we respond well, we are doing something We are revealing, we are reflecting the kingdom. We are reflecting God's glory to people that so desperately need it. We're not reflecting that we're better than they are. That's not it at all. We're reflecting that we have a sense, we have an experience, we have a truth that they long for. They just don't know what to call it. They have managed to stereotype Christianity. They stereotype Christians... Think about the bad language that gets thrown around. It's almost a curse word, evangelical, right? I'm on a mission to reclaim that. That is a good word. That means we believe in the good news that God loves every planet, every person on this planet. That's what it means. I am an evangelical. I'm not afraid to tell people that. In fact, I love it when I tell them that and they roll their eyes. That just gives me the perfect opening to say, what's that all about? Why well, you roll your eyes? We throw these words around like curse words. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to tell people that you're a Christian. Do not be afraid to tell people that you're an evangelical. Look at the word fundamental. Boy, the word fundamental now is terrible. But way back when it was first used, you know what it meant we just believe in the fundamentals of the faith we believe in the trinity we believe in a high view of scripture we believe in in a loving savior who came to redeem us we believe that he's going to come back for us those are fundamental truths so in that respect i am a fundamental but now we've managed to turn that word negative and attach it to all kinds of religious things so we have radical fundamentalist islam what that means what does that mean They're going to kill you. Right? We've turned this word into something really negative, which is not what it was intended to be. That's what the world understands about Christianity. You think that they have a large part of that, the media? The truth is, we have something that everybody needs. We have grace. We have grace. So down underneath all of this is a very simple message We live life like the world and the world understands it. What they don't understand is when we show grace to one another and patience and love and we come alongside and help people. That's what's new for them. That's what's new for them. So, why should we rejoice and be glad? I picked three passages I want to look at. One's in Philippians chapter 1. You've heard all these passages before, I'm sure. Uh, Philippians chapter 1. We often go to chapter 2 talking about Christ. The, re- the first reason we should be glad and rejoice is because we have a powerful testimony when we together suffer. Listen to these words, Philippians 1, 27. Whatever happens, whatever happens, to yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul only uses the verb to be good citizens one time and it's right here. Because, you know, the Philippians, they were granted citizenship as a gift in the Roman Empire, a priceless, priceless gift to have. And so he uses it right here. So whatever happens, be good citizens. We should be good citizens, shouldn't we? That's why you've heard me say over the, over the years, let's don't get caught up in the fight, the political battle. Vote your conscience, engage in good Discussion. Don't fight. So conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Okay, pause. Notice what he says here. We are striving together for the gospel. We're not striving against each other. Paul says our battle is not with flesh and blood. We strive together. We don't strive against each other. How many of you have come from a church or been associated with a church or know of a church that's split? How many of you? Ah, boy, that just saddens me. That's at least half of you. Really? One of the things Mark and I experienced in Haiti this week was the uh, president there of the the, uh, ministry invited pastors from around the area to bring their staff. So like Mark said, we had like 180 or something. We, we thought we'd be good if we had 25. We had 180 pastors came with their staffs. But what was, what was remarkable to me was that some of these pastors had split off sometime in the past and they weren't even talking to each other. And he managed to get them into the same room so we could rejoice and worship together, which we did. And we could talk about principles of what is a healthy community, how to come together, We don't strive against one another. We strive together for the faith of the gospel. What is the gospel? I'll remind you of that as long as I'm alive, as much as I can. What's the gospel? God loves this entire creation. And he's doing everything he can short of violating your free will to get you to turn to him. He shows you love and grace long before you turn to him. Many of you can attest to that. You see, we actually do have a loving God. We don't have a judgmental God. We have a loving God. We have a God who made you for joy. When you think of God, do you think of Him as uh, a living, true, loving God who created you and made you for joy? Or do you think of Him as somebody who's got all these rules and regulations in place just waiting for you to trip? I would argue that the first one is a legitimate view of God. We strive together for this gospel, for this wonderful news. You'll know them by their love. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. That's what he's talking about in Matthew 5, this last beatitude. They insult you, they revile you, they, they insult you, they accuse you falsely. He said, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, don't be afraid. They don't know who Jesus is. They only know a caricature. That's what they know. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. So when you respond in grace, you know what? You're giving them a sign. When you respond in grace to those who hate you, to revile against, those who revile you, those who say bad things about you, don't retaliate. Don't. Don't seek vengeance. You're giving them a sign that there's something better. And if they don't listen, it leads to their destruction. For it has been granted to you. Here it is. Has been granted to you. That's a verb which means God's gracious gift. His grace has been given to you, but we don't have a verb for the word grace. So we translated it. It has been given to you graciously by God on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for him. You see, suffering, what he's talking about in this beatitude, is a sign of grace. I've asked several of you, as we've met, and you're struggling with whatever you're struggling with, um, your perspective on sin. As a church, we have elevated sin and given it so much power to the point that it's almost idolatrous in our churches. Here's how I picture sin. I have a 4 year old son I say don't run out in the street you're going to get hurt that's a good thing to do as a parent right that makes me responsible if I don't tell him that truth and he runs out in the street is he still going to get hurt yes he is it's an act of grace when I say don't do that that's what sin is sin the identification of sin in the scriptures is an act of grace it's taking a shortcut that is not going to get you where you want to go. As Proverbs says, you got the way of, of wisdom and righteousness or you got the way of foolishness and folly, what we call sin. This one looks more attractive and it's kind of fun, but it doesn't get you what you want. This one does. Right here. This one does. And so, it is the grace of God that you suffer because because the world understands it the powerful testimony we have nothing to be afraid of nothing at all don't be afraid of the world tell each other that regularly don't be afraid of the world I tell our elders that from time to time we don't have to worry about Summit County we don't have to be afraid we have the living God behind us okay the second passage I want to talk about is in 2 Corinthians 4 um Mary Ellen, are you here? Couldn't see if she raised her hand. I'm going to tell on her. Because I love to laugh at her. She makes me laugh. She comes up to me and she said, Are you familiar with 2 Corinthians 4? And I said, Yes. What part are you thinking of? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our suffering leads to future glory. And I said, oh yeah, I know that pastor. She goes, well, I started praying for you because I had another surgery for my torn uh, hip labrum early this year. She goes, I said, God, our pastor has enough glory stored up. Would you please leave him alone? (laughs) I just love that woman. So here's the second reason we should rejoice when things don't go well is because we reveal God's glory. We reveal His grace. I'm going to start in verse seven. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Okay, pause. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show, to show, who are we showing? We'll keep going. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted but not abandoned. We are struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed. Okay, stop. Revealed to whom? Who's watching? Your neighbor. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Revealed to whom? So then death is at work in us. Why? Because life is at work in you. What God is doing to me is for your benefit. It's also for mine because it strengthens my faith. But it's for your benefit. Several of you were here three years ago when I announced I'd been diagnosed with bladder cancer. Not a good day. Not the most fun day of my life. It was a horrible day. It took me 24 hours to get my mind wrapped around that diagnosis. And toward the end of the 24 hours, including not sleeping, I remember sitting there, I had been crying, and I just stopped and I said, okay, God, I'm game. What are you going to do with this? Because I know this verse. How are you going to strengthen the people at Dillon Community Church? I don't want cancer. I'm not a masochist. That's not what I want. But my faith says you're going to grow because of it. Then he goes on here, it is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with him to himself. Mm -hmm. Do you actually believe that the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, is involved in your life every second of every day? Do you really believe that? That's powerful. You sit here today because of God's choice to let you live. If Satan has his way, you'd be dead that quick. Look at Job. The only reason you are alive today is because of God's grace. We call that providence, his grace in your life. But he goes on from there. All of this is for your benefit so that the grace, you get it? Your benefit, who's watching? So it'll be revealed, your benefit, you and the neighbors around you. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Who's giving more thanks? The people around you. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed every day, day by day. You see, life is being generated because you let the Lord have His way. You've probably heard Mark say several times that your your understanding of grace is directly dependent on your understanding of sin. If you have a weak view of sin and suffering, you have a weak view of grace. The more you suffer the more you appreciate grace. And that's what he's saying here. Every day we are being renewed for our light and momentary troubles. They don't seem light to you, do they? Not at the moment, but they are. These light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs everything else. Your suffering is storing up treasure for you. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. How many times in this passage did you talk about it's revealed to someone else? So one of the reasons God takes us through this is that it's a way of revealing God's grace. Like I said, the world understands suffering. They get that. That's their language. What they don't understand is grace and love. The way you demonstrate grace and the way you run alongside to help them when they're going through it. The third one is in Hebrews chapter 12. Again, a very famous verse. This is one I love because it relates to what we're doing right here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, don't think of this as spectators. Okay, this isn't like a modern NFL football game. Remember the saying? Desperately in need of exercise. 22 people desperately in need of rest. No, this isn't what this is like. Picture an amphitheater where every single one of you is an athlete and you've participated in the games. So when he uses this word cloud, which is fairly unusual, this is talking about engagement, not passive witness. These aren't people standing off to the side going, oh, yeah, good job, way to... Way to make the right decision. No, 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 no. These are the people who have made the decisions to stay faithful. That's what chapter 11 is all about. Chapter 11 is about all these people who have come before you and are part of the journey that you're on. They have done it. They have made the decision. How many of you have been faced with a hard decision but made the right decision? Let me see. Hopefully every hand goes up. All right. All right. Okay? You have created a cloud for our younger people. They're not alone. Our younger people need to know that they're not alone. We've walked this road. We've been around that block. We've gone down this journey, haven't we? Those of us that are older. And our younger people need to know that. We did it. God was with us. This is what he's talking about here. We are part of something bigger, than ourselves. This is not about you. This is about you and the kingdom. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles, gets our feet tripped up so we fall in this race. Set it aside. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him. Here's one of those reasons we should rejoice. Because we have the same journey that Christ does. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame. Scorned its shame. Remember what he just said? Blessed people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. He scorned the shame, just like we have to do. Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not go weary and lose heart. We are part of something bigger. Part of something bigger than ourselves. These are the reasons why should we should rejoice. We should rejoice because our faith is being strengthened. We should rejoice because we are revealing God's grace to people that we care about. If God came to you today and said your neighbor or your friend or your child or your parent, whoever you know that doesn't know Christ and says, I'm going to give you cancer and the result is that this person is going to come to know you. Would you be willing to do it? I bet many of you would. Well, the only difference is he hasn't told you that's what he's doing. Directly. But that's what he's doing. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. Okay. So we're concluding this is a conclusion to the beatitudes which is laying the foundation of theories again. He's going to reverse truths that we find within culture. Really? You think it's wrong not to we shouldn't get divorced, we shouldn't murder, we shouldn't even hate people, we shouldn't lust after people. Boy, these are all things the world doesn't have a big problem with. So he's still going to challenge our thinking in the context of grace. So he concludes with that very thing: Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. All right. Listen now he finishes chapter five. I'm going to jump ahead. You have heard it said, "Love your enemy. I mean, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Wow. He causes, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what regard, what reward will you get? Duh. Even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You realize that if God really wants to bless your enemy, you know the greatest thing he can do without question is to is to take you that that enemy and route them right into your life. That's the greatest gift he can give your enemy is to put them right smack in the middle of your life. You know why? Because God has confidence that you'll show grace. You're not going to be like everybody else. You see, your enemy expects everybody else to treat them well, but they don't expect you to treat them well. So, the greatest gift God can give your enemies is to route them right to you and then love them. Surprise them. Surprise them. Okay, I want to say one last word as we finish this series. We've talked about it all throughout the series about what it means to be a church of grace. We've talked about politics and various things about, let's be careful not to get caught up in the, the fight of all of it, the argumentation, all of that, the stresses of it. How do we do that? I was reading this week, and uh, I'm going to read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you have heard that name. Gave up his life and on Nazi Germany. It's a German, he was a German pastor and theologian. Wrote quite a bit. Gave up his life for standing up for what is right. And here's what he says about Uh, Principles of Eradicating Selfish Ambition from Christian Communities. Because this is really what this is talking about here. The very core of this is how do we eradicate, how do we get rid of selfish ambition so that we just gradually more and more realize that God is using us to reflect His love to a community that so desperately needs it. Here are his principles. Christians, he says, number one, should hold their tongues. Hold their tongues. Refuse to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother or sister. Just refuse. At the end of my seminary days, I went to the chairman of the New Testament department and I said, You know, in all my, in all my classes here, I've never heard a professor speak poorly about another theological belief, another professor, another pastor. And he goes, Of course not, that'd be sin. I said, yeah, but that's easy said. How do you do that? And he said, every year and all throughout the year, we refresh ourselves and we remind ourselves we are not here to criticize other Christians. Hold your tongue. Christians should, number two, cultivate the humility that comes from understanding that they, like Paul, are the greatest of sinners. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're a greater sinner than your neighbor? If you do, that generates humility. If not, it, it it generates pity and arrogance. Number three, listen long and patiently so that they will understand their fellow Christians' needs. It's not a debate. I love debate, don't get me wrong. If you guys want to debate? Let's get into it. But we should listen when the time is right long and patiently to understand each other. Not argue and fight. Next, Christians should refuse to consider their time and calling so valuable that they cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs, no matter how small or trivial. We're not that important, that yeah, we can't stop and help people. Next, Christians should bear the burden of their brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom and by forgiving their sin. Preserve another's freedom by forgiving their sin. Wow. We should declare God's word to our fellow believers when they need to hear it. You see, the gospel isn't meant only for the world. The gospel is meant for you as well. We need to remind each other regularly of the gospel, the fantastic news that God loves this entire world. And finally, Christians should understand that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs the service. That's protecting against a prideful heart. That's what a church should look like. So as I conclude, let me just remind you, engage in healthy discussion about what's going on in our world. Don't fight. Don't use social media to post your rhetoric. Don't do it. Engage. You know what? When we do that, here's what happens. The world around us looks at us and says, how do you do that? How do you have that kind of marriage, that kind of family? How come your church is that loving? When I'm in trouble, I can just run to you for help. That's what we want them to say, right? They want them to know us by our love, not by our political beliefs, not by our, you name it, you fill in the blank. Father, help us to be that kind of church. Thank you for these incredible beatitudes that on the surface seem so simple, but as we dig down in each one, boy, there's a bucket of gold. Lord, I'll be the first to confess, these are not easy. They're not easy for me, I know that. I don't like mourning. I don't like... Uh, I don't like finding out I have cancer. I don't like being confronted with the reality of my own sinfulness. But yet I recognize, Lord, that it's far bigger than about me. Help us today, Lord, as a church. Help us to be a church that is known for our love, not for our arguing. Thank you for your gracious, gracious love for us. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and take